Good to have somebody else read for us a little bit. That's good. Well, you may not have heard the news. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. Okay, that doesn't, seems like you might have gotten that news. Um, yeah, because it was a huge event. People talked about it kind of nonstop for the last couple of weeks. Uh, her funeral apparently was one of the most watched events in human history. Uh, that maybe, they say, there were, it was numbered in the billions. There were billions of people that watched this. And if, if ever I feel any pressure about preaching my sermon, I can think about Justin Welby, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, who had to do a sermon for like two billion people or whatever. So there you go. Uh, you guys are very forgiving. I appreciate that. Uh, well, Queen Elizabeth II, what, people loved her. Uh, people uh, liked her in particular. I feel like she was somebody who really tried to do her job well, wanted to do it in the sight of God and to serve God well and to serve people well. I think that she had a great perspective on that. Uh, Americans in general, we're just kind of interested in royalty, which is kind of funny. Like, didn't we kind of do a thing to not have to worry about the king anymore, all that stuff. Um, but we're very interested in this. A lot of us are, uh, which is a whole different topic for another time. I think it's really fascinating that we, are, that we are so interested all the time in what's happening with royalty. But I appreciate that royalty in the UK is a constitutional royalty, a constitutional monarchy, and so it's very different than perhaps even the one that is going to be referenced, that we reference in our passage today in the book of Samuel, where they uh, this whole passage is about wanting a king. Uh, really, it's not just about wanting, they wanted a ruler. They wanted to have this ruler to come and to be their king, and they wanted this earthly king who would rule over them. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's where we're going to be. And um, in the months of September and October, we are reading through a big swath of Scripture. And so we're going to be talking about a different book of Scripture each time. And we, it goes from all the way from when the people of God first entered into the promised land to the establishment of the kingdom, then on until actually because of the people's turning away from God, then their eventual being sending, uh, sent into exile outside. So you can read along with us in uh, the uh, Immerse book or in your own Bible or just listen online. That's, um, all of those are fine. So this past week's um, story that we were reading, we were reading in the book of 1 Samuel, and it started off with this beautiful picture of this woman named Hannah who comes before God and, and is praying earnestly that God would give her a child. And uh, she does have that child, and that child ends up being this man named Samuel who ends up being a, uh, a big part of this whole section, and uh, he's an important part of the establishment of the, the monarchy. That is, by the way, why it's called kingdoms. It's all about the, the king, these kingdoms that are getting set up. So uh, we also are introduced in this section to Saul, who is the first king of Israel, and also to David, who is the second king of Israel, and there's some friction between them because there's some overlap. Uh, if you are in an immersed discussion group, I'm sure that you were able to discuss some of the things that stood out to you this last week, or maybe even some things that, that confused you in this whole passage. We're not going to be able to get to all those things. In our immersed discussion groups, we also talk about, hey, what are, what are, some, what are some things that we learn different about God? Do we see God in a different way? 
Or do we, maybe, is there something that pushes us to want to act or live in a different way as well? Well, there are tons of things that we could talk about. We can't discuss all of them when we do 20 chapters or whatever. Uh, but uh, we had to stop and look at this one passage in particular. It's a key passage for this whole section uh, because this is a significant transition in Israel's history. Up until this point, the people had been ruled by their clan leaders or specifically by a judge that God would raise up. And the judge was somebody who would be a, a leader for the time, either to help arbitrate some issues that were going on or maybe to repel a foreign enemy that was attacking, something like that. Those were people that they could bring up. And Samuel actually is one of the last of the judges. He was the, the one who was there at the at the end, he was that, uh, that figure. Then one day, the elders of Israel, they gathered and they took a look at Samuel's sons and they said, these guys are dishonest and they are not going to do, uh, they're not going to do well for us. In fact, they, they, just, they just said to themselves, I can't imagine what it would be like if they were our leaders or Actually, probably they could imagine what it would be like, and they didn't like it. We don't like the idea of them being our leaders. They said, we should do something else. And so they don't mince words. In in verse 5, they say this, Look, you are now old, Samuel, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. And Samuel, not happy about this. This is not a good idea. I don't think they should do this. And, And God doesn't seem very pleased about it either. And they... But he comes to God, and God says to do it. Well, there are three big questions that come up for me as I read through this passage, as, they, as the people are looking for a king, seemingly a king to replace God. There are three questions. The, the first one is, what is wrong with their demand? What, uh, where is this going to lead? And then, what is God going to do? So first, what was wrong with their demand? Well, this was really the first thing that came to mind for me because I read through the book of Judges and it wasn't pretty the way that things were going there. It was very messy. That was the word that we used last week. We said this was super messy way for this to, to go through this. The book of Judges was a mess. And so, I mean, a king feels like an improvement to that in some ways. It feels like, hey, how can this actually be that bad, at least if we have somebody who's helping to take care of that? And then added to that, I will say, the, the idea of Israel having a king isn't in itself sinful. It's not actually a sinful thing for them to want because previously in Scripture there had been some places where God had not only uh, hinted at but had specifically said that Israel was going to have a king. Uh, as far back as Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are seen as the father and mother of faith. Uh, these are the, the beginning of God's a real covenant with his people was with Abraham. And so go ahead and put that first one up. This is in Genesis 17, 6. It says this. He's, God says this to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Then uh, he's speaking of his wife, Sarah. He says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So uh, then there's another one. Um, in Deuteronomy 17, God gives this teaching. This is at the, the end uh, of, near the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, when you enter the land the Lord is giving you and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, 
And you say, let us, let's, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. So there's, it's not strange to me that, that God gives instructions about what this king is supposed to be like. And following that, actually, in Deuteronomy, it says there are a bunch of things that are supposed to constrain the king. And the king's supposed to be under God and to really have the welfare of the people in mind. But it it isn't about actually having a king in itself that seems like it's the problem. It's the, the problem is something else. Israel said that they would have, or they said that Israel would have a king like the other nations. So what was wrong with their request? Well, their request was based on wrong motives. After Samuel tells the elders, he says, this is a bad idea, and let me tell you all the things that are going to happen if you have a king like this. And afterwards, they go, no, 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 we hear that, we still want a king. And they say, in verse 20, he says, we want, we want to be like the nations around us. And it's interesting, because in Deuteronomy 17, they said, we're going to give them a king like the nations around them. But they say, we want to have a king to be like the nations around us. And it sounds kind of subtle at first. So you go, is that that big of a difference? I'm not sure. And as I was thinking about this, I thought thought it might be helpful if we see it in a little bit of a different context. I imagined, say, a young woman who comes to her parents and says, Mom, Dad, I would like to go on a trip to Europe like how you let my sisters do. That sounds one way, doesn't it? If she says, Mom, Dad, I want to go to Europe just like my, I want to be like my sisters did. It sounds a little bit different. And to me, the, the part of the difference is the, the, the direction of our gaze. In the first one, the gaze is toward the parents and kind of asking for permission. I want the, I, please, I'm looking to the parents, I want this thing too. Instead, in the second one, it's more like the gaze is toward the other people. I want to be like them. I don't want to stand out. And the gaze has turned away from their parents. And I think that's what's happened for the Israelites. There's a, they, they have turned away. They don't want to stand out from the other nations around them. They want to just be like everybody else. Uh, they don't want to uh, be any different than their neighbors. So they have some wrong motives. They're just wanting to be like them. And, and I think that they're also expecting some kind of wrong outcomes from this as well. Uh, They say, we want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle, to judge us and lead us into battle. But God, God has been their king. God has been the one who has done all those things for it. In fact, just the chapter before in in, uh, 1 Samuel 7, there actually is a battle where God goes out before the people, and it says this, it says, they defeated their enemies with the Lord's help. And Samuel, he takes a stone, and he sets it up between Mitzpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Now that's a, we sing a song that has all that. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Uh, thus far, far the Lord has helped us. They actually like built a monument and said, God has helped us up till here. I want to prove that to myself and to other people who come afterwards. And just one chapter later, the people go, yeah, that's not really good enough. 
So the people are expecting, and, and the, even the whole words about like, lead us into battle, that must have hurt a little bit. God's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I've been doing for you the whole time since you entered the promised land, right? It says in the book of Joshua, and Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because Yahweh, God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Israel wanted a king who would judge them, despite the fact that Yahweh was their judge, and Israel wanted a king who would fight for them, despite the fact that God had been all along fighting for them. So I think it's kind of natural that God says, this rejection, them desiring this thing is actually a rejection of me. They're turning on me. All right, well, number two, where does this lead? Where, where is it going to go? So asking for a king, they, I think that they were looking for safety. They are looking for somebody to help give prosperity. They're looking for somebody to kind of protect their honor among the other nations. I, I think they just wanted to have some control over their destiny, and they were feeling a bit powerless. I think I can resonate with some of that stuff. But Samuel ends up warning them. He says, if you choose this king, you're going to forfeit control of your life. You know what you're going to get? You're going to get insecurity. You're going to get somebody who takes some of your prosperity and uses it for his own. And in the end, you're not going to be more free. You're going to be more subjugated because of this. So in, in rejecting God as their king, they end up actually reaping other rewards. They're, by turning away from God, they're getting these other bad things. So I mean, at first, I will say, at first, when they first get Saul, it seems like they're kind of getting all the things that they want. Saul leads them into battle, and he wins, and he's, he's helpful, and the nation seems to prosper. It does well. But then after a short amount of time, some greed starts to grow up in him. He gets very jealous, and he's very self-protective, kind of paranoid, and he starts to try to protect himself, and, it, and it, it, it destroys the direction that he had been going in, and he ends up kind of starting that process of squeezing them that we're going to see later on in, in further kings farther on down the way, and that there, it's not going to look really good. But it's interesting. I, I, one of the things I noticed was that in the book of Judges, there's no king, and things are prosperous at times. They do have some issues at times, but it's when they turn away from God that they begin to have most of their problems. Now, in the book of Samuel, they end up getting a king, and we're going to see how that plays out for them as it goes on. But part of the issue is when they, they have turned their hearts toward God as their true king, they do well. But when they turn away from God as their king, that even though they have a human king, things fall apart. So the danger really is, is ultimately in rejecting God's leadership and not specifically who is the human who's leading things, but that God is supposed to be the king of our life. You might be thinking, hey, good news, I don't do that. Because look, I'm at church, so I don't reject God as king. I want God. That's great. <laughs> we, I think part of that tends to be we do equate thinking of God as king as, um, I think a lot of times I think about it as the parable of the uh, prodigal son. If you know the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus told about this son who came to his father and asked for his inheritance and left and spent it all on, I love the King James Version, it says, he spent it on riotous living. Uh, so he spent his inheritance, crazy party life, uh, but we end up forgetting that that particular story was told specifically to people who were more legalistic. 
And the main point of the story was actually about the older son who won't come in and be with the father. He, the older son also has a broken relationship with the father. That the, he's not willing to see the father who, who, for who he really is and has seen serving the father as his own type of subjugation. So we can hide, I think. I think the story that we have to see is that we can hide from God, from the face of the Father, either in open rebellion against God, but also sometimes in a type of religiosity that we try to hide from God. There is a, there's a comment by um, our author Flannery O'Connor. She had one of her characters in a book uh, say this about someone. She says, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Isn't that great? That the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. I, I read about that in a great book uh, that's called uh, the Reason for, A Reason for God by Tim Keller. Really great. I recommend that. Um, but the, basically, she says of this character that the way that this character is trying to avoid the gaze of Jesus is actually by avoiding sin. That we end up getting in a situation where we think, you know what, I don't actually need God because I'm kind of doing the things that Jesus wants. I, don't, I can hide from him in a different way. So if we're, if we're avoiding sin or trying to live in a moral way, we can do that in a way that because we want God to, to bless us, because we want to do the things and we, uh, that we're trying to do, ironically, what we can end up doing is finding a way to end up hiding from Jesus. We're avoiding him we take him as our teacher, but maybe not as our savior, because we don't necessarily need him. We're trying to save ourselves rather than leaning on God to be the one to actually save us. So when we first read this passage in Samuel, I think we kind of either try to excuse the Israelites, like, hey, you know what, it's fine for them to choose this thing. Or maybe, maybe we kind of blame them, like, come on, I just read, you know, it was easy, you guys can do this. Um, but I think what God wants for us, he wants us, oftentimes when we come to Scripture, he wants Scripture to be a mirror for us. Not just a blame game, not just to kind of laugh at them or even just to celebrate something, but to have it be a mirror for us. And that we have to realize is that we also walk in the presence of God. If we're Christians, we, we have the Spirit of God in us, and yet still somehow, sometimes, we clamor for another king. God, I want a different king. We know, or we can see that there is something vying for our attention, for our gaze, uh, when, we, when we say, I surrender all, Lord, just not that one thing, right? I, salent, I, that I surrender most doesn't have quite the same ring, right? Like, but I mean, if I'm being truthful, a lot of times when I come to God, that's kind of what my heart is singing. I surrender most, right? Um, but... <laughs> But uh, we can say, you know, God, you know, God, if you're not welcome in this relationship, God, you can change everything, just don't touch this relationship, then God isn't the king of that thing. If God isn't welcome into shaping how we perceive ourselves, God isn't in that. Uh, if God isn't able to shape how we think about our drinking or about our rationale, maybe, for why we moved in together, if God is maybe not able to shape my rationale for why I want to move out. 
If I try to excuse my bursts of anger or the things that I spend my money on, my bits of greed or the ambition that's in me, or if I'm willing to use other people to achieve my goals, if God isn't the king over all of those things, then he's actually not the king that thing is. That thing is the real royalty in our lives, and we're letting it, because we're letting it overrule God. God has a certain rule, and this thing gets to say, no, God, not in this area. I'm going to come in, and I get to be in charge here. But God will be king. God is king over all. He will be king. So what is God going to do about this? Third question, what is God going to do? And I think it's, it's kind of surprising, a little bit improbable even. God actually grants a request. I, I, when I think about this situation where the people come to God and they're like, hey, we want another king who would be like you but kind of not as much in our business. Uh, and you, you can picture God's going, yeah, no. Actually, no, you, can't, you don't get that. But God goes, okay, yes. He tells Samuel, yes, grant them a request, give it to them, and give them what they want. I know what this means for them. They don't even totally realize, but it's not going to really work out for them. But God gives them what they want. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know what? That has happened in my life. Sometimes God has given me what I wanted or the thing that I prayed for. And sometimes God lets us face the consequences of those things. I don't know if you've ever had that experience uh, of things that you have had happen. Maybe you wanted it. You prayed for it, and God goes, okay, let's see how that works out for you. It's not always wonderful. And it's interesting thinking about that. I thought, boy, you know, there's probably some moments where God doesn't answer my prayer with a yes, where God actually tells me no, that it actually could be a mercy for me. There's so many things that I have prayed for. It's easier to see it now. The things that I prayed for in my 20s, I'm so glad God did not answer certain prayers for me, right? Uh, Whatever that may be. Uh, But I think it's interesting for us to be able to just take a step back for a moment and say, maybe sometimes we can find a mercy in an unanswered prayer. It doesn't feel like that in the moment, I will say. It does not feel like that, but, but maybe in God refusing us something, maybe it's actually a way of protecting us uh, that we can maybe see with a little bit of perspective. So what does God do? It's interesting. God ends up still using this kingdom, the monarchy. This is an image that God uses throughout, uh, that, that he is king and that he's going to be sending his king, his anointed one. The king was actually literally anointed with oil, like oil poured over his head. And the word for that is that, well, we use the word christen, right? Um, that's in, in, that's in uh, Latin. It's Christus. Uh, that, and in Hebrew, it's the Messiah, is the one who is christened. He is the king. He's the one who's supposed to be over all. He's God's king. And that's, that's what everything ends up, God ends up using this thing, even with their mixed up motives, he uses this thing to point to something much larger. He says, what you need is a king who will not oppress you. You need a king who will do it right, who will bring justice. You need a king who will be humble. And the kings that you're going to have, they're going to get corrupted by their power, but not this king. God planned that he would send that. And Jesus, Jesus is the king that the people needed, but not really what the one they were clamoring for at the time. He didn't take from people. He ends up giving them gifts. 
He, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't oppress them. He actually serves them. He, doesn't, he does bring victory, uh, not with bloodshed, but he, he conquers people's hearts and brings peace in, the, in their lives. He didn't come to serve, but to serve, and he did so by dying on a cross for us. Jesus is not like the other kings of nations. His reign was righteous. It still is. And we can, if we trust in him, we can enter into his eternal kingdom. This is the kind of king that we have. When he talked about what leadership looks like, this is what Jesus said. Go ahead and put that verse up from Matthew. Did I not put that one in there? Um, Matthew 20 says this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's no earthly king who's ever going to say this. That if you want to be first, you need to be last. And not only did he say that other people should do it, he did it himself. That he is first because he's the one who is willing to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting that sometimes we can think that if, if God... If God sent a, a perfect person who has justice in the world, who is going to be a good king, who would take care of all of us, that we would all be really excited about that kind of leader. But the truth is that that kind of leader came into the world and the people rejected him. They, they sent him to be crucified. They spat on him and hurled insults on him. We don't, our hearts don't actually naturally yearn for that because we, we want to hide, I think. There's a, there's a posture, though, of vulnerability toward God to say, I surrender all. I want you to be the king over my whole life. I want you to be the one that will lead me. So the question for us that we can leave with is, is Christ the king over your life? We, we want him to lead us in theory, but boy, there's, still some, there's always some stuff that kind of resists God. So we can open ourselves up in some new way. Maybe this week to even just say, I'm going to let God decide this thing. Maybe it's a small thing. Make it a small thing. God, I'm, I'm going to invite you in. I would like to pray to you regularly. Maybe there's something much bigger where you can say, I, I need you to be in charge of this thing. Make God your king and decide to surrender all. I hope that you will stick with us through this whole series as we go through kingdoms. Uh, if you want to read with us, like I said, you can read along in your own Bible. You can listen on the app. Uh, you can do however you want. If you want to find the readings, they are on the church website. There's a place you can click through for that. But before we get to that, let's pray. Lord, we, we want to take a moment to try in some way to say we want to surrender to you. Maybe, maybe even God accept this. We want to want to surrender to you. We want to want to give ourselves to you. You are the good king that we need. And we pray, Lord, that you will extend your reign over every part of, of our lives. No matter how, 
whether we are just starting our walk with you or maybe we've been with you for a long time, we want you to be the king and to, to press out into new areas in our lives so that we may, we may serve you with joy because we know that joy is found in your life and in, in the life that you give and in the, in, the, in, in the experience of keeping your gaze on us. It, it's a little scary, but it is good. So we're glad to be your subjects and your people, Lord. Amen.